Chapter 36 of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Menelakis. Chapter 36 Antietam. Pursuit from South Mountain. Position of the Enemy. The Battle. Burnside's Failure. His Contradictory Statements. Letters of Colonel Sackett. On the night of the Battle of South Mountain, orders were given to the Corps commanders to press forward their pickets at early dawn. This advance revealed the fact that the enemy had left his positions and an immediate pursuit was ordered. The cavalry under General Pleasanton and the three corps under Generals Sumner, Hooker, and Mansfield, the latter of whom had arrived that morning and assumed command of the 12th Williams Corps. By the National Turnpike and Boonesboro, the corps of General Burnside and Porter, the latter command at that time consisting of but one weak division, Sykes, by the old Sharpsburg Road, and General Franklin to move into Pleasant Valley, occupy Roarersville by detachment, and endeavor to relieve Harper's Ferry. General Burnside and Porter, upon reaching the road from Boonesboro to Roarersville, were to reinforce Franklin or to move on Sharpsburg, according to circumstances. Franklin moved towards Brownsville and found there a force of the enemy, much superior in numbers to his own, drawn up in a strong position to receive him. At this time, the cessation of firing at Harper's Ferry indicated the surrender of that place. The cavalry overtook the enemy's cavalry in Boonesboro, made a dashing charge, killing and wounding a number, and capturing 250 prisoners and two guns. General Richardson's division of the 2nd Corps, pressing the rear guard of the enemy with vigor, passed Boonesboro and Keatesville, and came upon the main body of the enemy, occupying in large force a strong position a few miles beyond the latter place. It had been hoped to engage the enemy on the 15th. Accordingly, instructions were given that if the enemy were overtaken on the march, they should be attacked at once. If found in heavy force and in position, the corps in advance should be placed in position for attack and await my arrival. Early in the morning I had directed Burnside to put his corps in motion upon the old Sharpsburg Road, but to wait with me for a time until more detailed news came from Franklin. About eight o'clock he begged me to let him go, saying that his corps had been some time in motion, and that if he delayed longer he would have difficulty in overtaking it. So I let him go. At about midday I rode to the point where Reno was killed the day before, and found that Burnside's troops, the Ninth Corps, had not stirred from its bivouac, and still blocked the road for the regular division. I sent for Burnside for an explanation, but he could not be found. He subsequently gave as an excuse the fatigued and hungry condition of his men. Headquarters, Army of Potomac, September 15, 1230 p.m. General Burnside, General McClellan desires you to let General Porter's go on past you if necessary. You will then push your own command on as rapidly as possible. The general also desires to know the reason for your delay in starting this morning. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, George D. Ruggles, Colonel and A.D.C. After seeing the ground where Reno fell and passing over Hooker's battleground of the previous day, I went rapidly to the front by the main road, being received by the troops as I passed them with the wildest enthusiasm. Near Keatesville, I met Sumner, who told me that the enemy were in position in strong force and took me to a height in front of Keatesville whence a view of the position could be obtained. We were accompanied by a numerous staff and escort, but no sooner had we shown ourselves on the hill than the enemy opened upon us with rifled guns, 
and as his firing was very good, the hill was soon cleared of all save Fitz John Porter and myself. I at once gave orders for the positions of the bivouacs, massing the army so that it could be handled as required. I ordered Burnside to the left. He grumbled that his troops were fatigued, but I started him off anyhow. The first rapid survey of the enemy's position inclined me to attack his left, but the day was far gone. He occupied a strong position on the heights, on the west side of Antietam Creek, displaying a large force of infantry and cavalry with numerous batteries of artillery, which opened on our columns as they appeared in sight on the Keedysville Road and Sharpsburg Turnpike, which fire was returned by Captain Tidball's Light Battery, 2nd U.S. Artillery, and Pettit's Battery, 1st New York Artillery. The division of General Richardson, following close on the heels of the retreating foe, halted and deployed near Antietam River, on the right of the Sharpsburg Road. General Sykes, leading on the division of regulars on the old Sharpsburg Road, came up and deployed to the left of General Richardson, on the left of the road. Antietam Creek in this vicinity is crossed by four stone bridges, the upper one on the Keysville and Williamsport Road, the second on the Keedysville and Sharpsburg Turnpike, some two and a half miles below, the third about a mile below the second on the Roarersville and Sharpsburg Road, and the fourth near the mouth of Antietam Creek on the road leading from Harper's Ferry to Sharpsburg, some three miles below the third. The stream is sluggish, with few and difficult fords. After a rapid examination of the position, I found that it was too late to attack that day, and at once directed the placing of the batteries in position in the center, and indicated the bivouacs for the different corps, massing them near and on both sides of the Sharpsburg Turnpike. The Corps were not at all in their positions until the next morning after sunrise. On the morning of the 16th it was discovered that the enemy had changed the position of his batteries. The masses of his troops, however, were still concealed behind the opposite heights. Their left and center were upon and in front of the Sharpsburg and Hagerstown Turnpike, hidden by woods and irregularities of the ground their extreme left resting upon a wooded eminence near the crossroads to the north of J. Miller's farm, their left resting upon the Potomac, their line extended south, the right resting upon the hills to the south of Sharpsburg near Snavely's farm. The bridge over the Antietam near this point was strongly covered by riflemen protected by rifle pits, stone fences, etc., and enfiladed by artillery. The ground in front of this line consisted of undulating hills, their crests in turn commanded by others in their rear. Of all favorable points, the enemy's artillery was posted, and their reserves, hidden from view by the hills on which their line of battle was formed, could maneuver unobserved by our army, and from the shortness of their line could rapidly reinforce any point threatened by our attack. Their position, stretching across the angle formed by the Potomac and Antietam, their flanks and rear protected by these streams, was one of the strongest to be found in this region of country, which is well adapted to defensive warfare. On the right, near Keedysville, on both sides of the Sharpsburg Turnpike, were Sumner's and Hooker's Corps. In advance, on the right of the Turnpike and near the Antietam River, General Richardson's division of General Sumner's Corps was posted. General Sykes' division of General Porter's Corps was on the left of the Turnpike and in line with General Richardson, protecting the bridge number 2 over the Antietam. The left of the line, opposite to and some distance from bridge number three, was occupied by General Burnside's corps. Before giving General Hooker his orders to make the movement which will presently be described, I rode to the left of the line to satisfy myself that the troops were properly posted there to secure our left flank from any attack made along the left bank of the Antietam, as well as to enable us to carry bridge number three. 
I rode along the whole front, generally in front of our pickets, accompanied by Hunt, Duane, Colburn, and a couple of orderlies, and went considerably beyond our actual and eventual left. Our small party drew the enemy's fire frequently and developed the position of most of his batteries. I threw some of the regulars a little more to the left and observed that our extreme left was not well placed to cover the position against any force approaching from Harper's Ferry by the left bank of the Antietam. Also that the ground near Burnside's Bridge was favorable for defense on our side and that an attack across it would lead to favorable results. I therefore at once ordered Burnside to move his corps nearer the bridge, occupy the heights in rear, as well as to watch the approach from Harper's Ferry just spoken of. I gave this order at midday. It was near night before it was executed. I also instructed him to examine all the vicinity of the bridge, as he would probably be ordered to attack there next morning. In front of General Sumner's and Hooker's Corps, near Kittiesville and on the ridge of the first line of hills overlooking the Antietam, and between the Turnpike and Fry's House on the right of the road, were placed Captains Taft's, Langner's, Von Kleiser's, and Lieutenant Weaver's batteries of 20-pounder Parrot guns. On the crest of the hill in the rear and right of bridge number three, Captain Weed's 3-inch and Lieutenant Benjamin's 20-pounder batteries. General Franklin's Corps and General Couch's division held a position in Pleasant Valley in front of Brownsville, with a strong force of the enemy in their front. General Morell's division of Porter's Corps was en route from Boonesboro, and General Humphrey's division of new troops en route from Frederick, Maryland. About daylight on the 16th, the enemy opened a heavy fire of artillery on our guns in position, which was promptly returned. Their fire was silenced for the time, but it was frequently renewed during the day. It was afternoon before I could move the troops to their positions for attack, being compelled to spend the morning in reconnoitering the new position taken up by the enemy, examining the ground, finding fords, clearing the approaches, and hurrying up the ammunition and supply trains, which had been delayed by the rapid march of the troops over the few practicable approaches from Frederick. These had been crowded by the masses of infantry, cavalry, and artillery pressing on with the hope of overtaking the enemy before he could form to resist an attack. Many of the troops were out of rations on the previous day, and a good deal of their ammunition had been expended in the severe action of the 14th. My plan for the impending general engagement was to attack the enemy's left with the corps of Hooker and Mansfield, supported by Sumner's, and if necessary by Franklin's, and as soon as matters looked favorably there to move the corps of Burnside against the enemy's extreme right, upon the ridge running to the south and rear of Sharpsburg, and having carried their position, to press along the crest towards our right, and whenever either of these flank movements should be successful, to advance our center with all the forces then disposable. About 2 p.m., General Hooker, with his corps, consisting of Generals Ricketts, Meads, and Doubleday's divisions, was ordered to cross the Antietam at a ford and at bridge number one, a short distance above, to attack and, if possible, turn the enemy's left. General Sumner was ordered to cross the corps of General Mansfield, the 12th, during the night, and hold his own, the 2nd Corps, ready to cross early the next morning. On reaching the vicinity of the enemy's left, a sharp contest commenced with the Pennsylvania Reserves, the advance of General Hooker's Corps, near the house of D. Miller. The enemy was driven from the strip of woods where he was first met. The firing lasted until after dark, when General Hooker's Corps rested on their arms on ground won from the enemy. When I returned to the right and found that Hooker's preparations were not yet complete, I went to hurry them in person. It was perhaps half past three to four o'clock before Hooker could commence crossing and get fairly in motion up the opposite slopes. 
I accompanied the movement at the head of the column until the top of the ridge was fairly gained, indicated the new direction to be taken, and then returned to headquarters, not to the camp, but to a house further in advance, Fry's house, where I passed the night. During the night, General Mansfield's corps, consisting of Generals Williams and Green's divisions, crossed the Antietam at the same ford and bridge that General Hooker's troops had passed, and bivouacked on the farm of J. Puffenberger, about a mile in rear of General Hooker's position. At daylight on the 17th, the action was commenced by the skirmishers of the Pennsylvania Reserves. The whole of General Hooker's corps was soon engaged, and drove the enemy from the open field in front of the first line of woods into a second line of woods beyond, which runs to the eastward of and nearly parallel to the Sharpsburg and Hagerstown turnpike. This contest was obstinate, and as the troops advanced, the opposition became more determined and the number of the enemy greater. General Hooker then ordered up the corps of General Mansfield, which moved promptly toward the scene of action. The 1st Division, General Williams, was deployed to the right on approaching the enemy, General Crawford's brigade on the right, its right resting on the Hagerstown Turnpike, on his left, General Gordon's brigade. The 2nd Division, General Green's, joining the left of Gordon's, extended as far as the burnt buildings to the north and east of the White Church on the Turnpike. During the deployment, that gallant veteran, General Mansfield, fell mortally wounded while examining the ground in front of his troops. General Hartsuff of Hooker's Corps was severely wounded while bravely pressing forward his troops and was taken from the field. The command of the 12th Corps fell upon General Williams. Five regiments of the 1st Division of this Corps were new troops. One brigade of the 2nd Division was sent to support General Doubleday. The 125th Pennsylvania Volunteers were pushed across the turnpike into the woods beyond J. Miller's house, with orders to hold the position as long as possible. The line of battle of this corps was formed, and it became engaged about 7 a.m., the attack being opened by Knapp's, Pennsylvania, Cothran's, New York, and Hampton's, Pittsburgh, batteries. To meet this attack, the enemy had pushed a strong column of troops into the open fields in front of the turnpike, while he occupied the woods on the west of the turnpike in strong force. The woods, as was found by subsequent observation, were traversed by outcropping ledges of rock. Several hundred yards to the right and rear was a hill which commanded the debauch of the woods, and in the fields between was a long line of stone fences, continued by breastworks of rails, which covered the enemy's infantry from our musketry. The same woods formed a screen behind which his movements were concealed, and his batteries on the hill and the rifle works covered from the fire of our artillery in front. For about two hours, the battle raged with varied success, the enemy endeavoring to drive our troops into the second line of wood, and ours in turn to get possession of the line in front. Our troops ultimately succeeded in forcing the enemy back into the woods near the turnpike. General Green, with his two brigades crossing into the woods to the left of the Dunker Church. During this conflict, General Crawford, commanding 1st Division after General Williams took command of the Corps, was wounded and left the field. General Green being much exposed and applying for reinforcements, the 13th New Jersey, 27th Indiana, and 3rd Maryland were sent to his support with a section of Knapp's battery. At about 9 o'clock a.m., General Sedgwick's division of General Sumner's Corps arrived. Crossing the ford previously mentioned, this division marched in three columns to the support of the attack on the enemy's left. On nearing the scene of action, the columns were halted, faced to the front, and established by General Sumner in three parallel lines by brigade, facing toward the south and west. 
General Gorman's brigade in front, General Dana's second, and General Howard's third, with a distance between the lines of some 70 paces. The division was then put in motion and moved upon the field of battle, under fire from the enemy's concealed batteries on the hill beyond the roads. Passing diagonally to the front across the open space and to the front of the 1st Division of General Williams' Corps, this latter division withdrew. Entering the woods on the west of the turnpike and driving the enemy before them, the first line was met by a heavy fire of musketry and shell from the enemy's breastworks and the batteries on the hill commanding the exit from the woods. Meantime, a heavy column of the enemy had succeeded in crowding back the troops of General Green's division and appeared in rear of the left of Sedgwick's division. By command of General Sumner, General Howard faced the third line to the rear preparatory to a change of front to meet the column advancing on the left, but this line, now suffering from a destructive fire both in front and on its left, which was unable to return, gave way towards the right and rear in considerable confusion and was soon followed by the first and second lines. General Gorman's brigade and one regiment of General Dana's soon rallied and checked the advance of the enemy on the right. The second and third lines now formed on the left of General Gorman's brigade and poured a destructive fire upon the enemy. During General Sumner's attack, he ordered General Williams to support him. Brigadier General Gordon, with a portion of his brigade, moved forward, but when he reached the woods, the left of General Sedgwick's division had given way, and finding himself, as the smoke cleared up, opposed to the enemy in force with his small command, he withdrew to the rear of the batteries at the second line of woods. As General Gordon's troops unmasked our batteries on the left, they opened with canister. The batteries of Captain Cothran, 1st New York, and I, 1st Artillery, commanded by Lieutenant Woodruff, doing good service. Unable to withstand this deadly fire in front and the musketry fire from the right, the enemy again sought shelter in the woods and rocks beyond the turnpike. During this assault, Generals Sedgwick and Dana were seriously wounded and taken from the field. General Sedgwick, though twice wounded and faint from loss of blood, retained command of his division for more than an hour after his first wound, animating his command by his presence. About the time of General Sedgwick's advance, General Hooker, while urging on his command, was severely wounded in the foot and taken from the field, and General Meade was placed in command of his corps. General Howard assumed command after General Sedgwick retired. The repulse of the enemy offered opportunity to rearrange the lines and reorganize the commands on the right, now more or less in confusion. The batteries of the Pennsylvania Reserve on high ground near J. Poffenberger's house opened fire and checked several attempts of the enemy to establish batteries in front of our right to turn that flank and enfilade the lines. While the conflict was so obstinately raging on the right, General French was pushing his division against the enemy still further to the left. This division crossed the Antietam at the same ford as General Sedgwick and immediately in his rear. Passing over the stream in three columns, the division marched about a mile from the ford, then, facing to the left, moved in three lines towards the enemy. General Max Weber's brigade in front, Colonel Dwight Morse's brigade of raw troops, undrilled and moving for the first time under fire, in the second, and General Kimball's brigade in the third. The division was first assailed by a fire of artillery, but steadily advanced, driving in the enemy skirmishers, and encountered the infantry in some force at the group of houses on Roulette's farm. General Weber's brigade gallantly advanced with an unwavering front and drove the enemy from their position about the houses. While General Weber was hotly engaged with the first line of the enemy, General French received orders from General Sumner, his corps commander, to push on with renewed vigor to make a diversion in favor of the attack on the right. 
leaving the new troops, who had been thrown into some confusion from their march through cornfields, over fences, etc., to form as a reserve, he ordered the brigade of General Kimball to the front, passing to the left of General Weber. The enemy was pressed back to near the crest of the hill, where he was encountered in greater strength posted in a sunken road, forming a natural rifle pit running in a northwesterly direction. In a cornfield in rear of this road were also strong bodies of the enemy. As the line reached the crest of the hill, a galling fire was opened on it from the sunken road and cornfield. Here a terrific fire of musketry burst from both lines, and the battle raged along the whole line with great slaughter. The enemy attempted to turn the left of the line, but were met by the 7th Virginia and 132nd Pennsylvania Volunteers and repulsed. Foiled in this, the enemy made a determined assault on the front, but were met by a charge from our lines which drove them back with severe loss, leaving in our hands some 300 prisoners and several stands of colors. The enemy, having been repulsed by the terrible execution of the batteries and the musketry fire on the extreme right, now attempted to assist the attack on General French's division by assailing him on his right and endeavoring to turn this flank. But this attack was met and checked by the 14th Indiana and 8th Ohio Volunteers, and by canister from Captain Tompkins' battery, 1st Rhode Island Artillery. Having been under an almost continuous fire for nearly four hours, and the ammunition nearly expended, this division now took position immediately below the crest of the heights on which they had so gallantly fought, the enemy making no attempt to regain their lost ground. On the left of General French, General Richardson's division was hotly engaged. Having crossed the Antietam about 9.30 a.m. at the ford crossed by the other divisions of Sumner's Corps, it moved on a line nearly parallel to the Antietam and formed in a ravine behind the high grounds overlooking Roulette's house. The 2nd Irish Brigade, commanded by General Marr, on the right. The 3rd Brigade, commanded by General Caldwell, on his left, and the brigade commanded by Colonel Brooks, 53rd Pennsylvania Volunteers, in support. As the division moved forward to take its position on the field, the enemy directed a fire of artillery against it, but owing to the irregularities of the ground, did but little damage. Mars Brigade, advancing steadily, soon became engaged with the enemy posted to the left and in front of Roulette's house. It continued to advance under a heavy fire nearly to the crest of the hill overlooking Piper's house, the enemy being posted in a continuation of the sunken road and cornfield before referred to. Here the brave Irish brigade opened upon the enemy a terrific musket fire. All of General Sumner's corps was now engaged, General Sedgwick on the right, General French in the center, and General Richardson on the left. The Irish brigade sustained its well-earned reputation. After suffering terribly in officers and men, and strewing the ground with their enemies as they drove them back, their ammunition nearly expended, and their commander, General Marr, disabled by the fall of his horse shot under him, this brigade was ordered to give place to General Caldwell's brigade, which advanced to a short distance in its rear. The lines were passed by the Irish brigade, breaking by company to the rear, and General Caldwell's by company to the front, as steadily as on drill. Colonel Brooks' brigade now became the second line. The ground over which Generals Richardson's and French's divisions were fighting was very irregular, intersected by numerous ravines, hills covered with growing corn, enclosed by stone walls, behind which the enemy could advance unobserved upon any exposed point of our lines. Taking advantage of this, the enemy attempted to gain the right of Richardson's position in a cornfield near Roulette's house, 
where the division had become separated from that of General French's. A change of front by the 53rd New York and 2nd Delaware Volunteers of Colonel Brooks's brigade under Colonel Frank, and the attack made by the 53rd Pennsylvania Volunteers, sent further to the right by Colonel Brooks to close this gap in the line, and the movement of the 132nd Pennsylvania and 7th Virginia Volunteers of General French's division, before referred to, drove the enemy from the cornfield and restored the line. The brigade of General Caldwell, with determined gallantry, pushed the enemy back opposite the left and center of this division, but sheltered in the sunken road, they still held our forces on the right of Caldwell in check. Colonel Barlow, commanding the 61st and 64th New York regiments of Caldwell's brigade, seeing a favorable opportunity, advanced the regiments on the left, taking the line in the sunken road in flank, and compelled them to surrender, capturing over 300 prisoners and three stands of colors. The whole of the brigade, with the 57th and 66th New York regiments of Colonel Brooks' brigade, who had moved these regiments into the first line, now advanced with gallantry, driving the enemy before them in confusion into the cornfield beyond the sunken road. The left of the division was now well advanced when the enemy, concealed by an intervening ridge, endeavored to turn its left and rear. Colonel Cross, 5th New Hampshire, by a change of front to the left and rear, brought his regiment facing the advancing line. Here a spirited contest arose to gain a commanding height, the two opposing forces moving parallel to each other, giving and receiving fire. The fifth, gaining the advantage, faced to the right and delivered its volley. The enemy staggered, but rallied and advanced desperately at a charge. Being reinforced by the 81st Pennsylvania, these regiments met the advance by a countercharge. The enemy fled, leaving many killed, wounded, and prisoners, and the colors of the 4th North Carolina in our hands. Another column of the enemy, advancing under shelter of a stone wall and cornfield, pressed down on the right of the division, but Colonel Barlow again advanced the 61st and 64th New York against these troops, and with the attack of Kimball's brigade on the right, drove them from this position. Our troops on the left of this part of the line, having driven the enemy far back, they, with reinforced numbers, made a determined attack directly in front. To meet this, Colonel Barlow brought his two regiments to their position in line, and drove the enemy through the cornfield into the orchard beyond, under a heavy fire of musketry, and a fire of canister from two pieces of artillery in the orchard, and a battery further to the right throwing shell and case shot. This advance gave us possession of Piper's house, the strong point contended for by the enemy at this part of the line, it being a defensible building several hundred yards in advance of the sunken road. The musketry fire at this point of the line now ceased. Holding Piper's house, General Richardson withdrew the line a little way to the crest of a hill, a more advantageous position. Up to this time, the division was without artillery, and in the new position suffered severely from artillery fire which could not be replied to. A section of Robertson's horse battery, commanded by Lieutenant Vincent, 2nd Artillery, now arrived on the ground and did excellent service. Subsequently, a battery of brass guns, commanded by Captain Graham, 1st Artillery, arrived and was posted on the crest of the hill, and soon silenced the two guns in the orchard. A heavy fire soon ensued between the battery further to the right and our own. Captain Graham's battery was bravely and skillfully served, but unable to reach the enemy, who had rifled guns of greater range than our smoothbores, retired by order of General Richardson to save it from useless sacrifice of men and horses. The brave general was himself mortally wounded while personally directing its fire. General Hancock was placed in command of the division after the fall of General Richardson. 
General Marr's brigade, now commanded by Colonel Burke of the 63rd New York, having refilled their cartridge boxes, was again ordered forward, and took position in the center of the line. The division now occupied one line in close proximity to the enemy, who had taken up a position in the rear of Piper's house. Colonel Dwight Morris, with the 14th Connecticut, and a detachment of the 108th New York of General French's division, was sent by General French to the support of General Richardson's division. This command was now placed in an interval in the line between General Caldwell's and the Irish brigades. The requirements of the extended line of battle had so engaged the artillery that the application of General Hancock for artillery for the division could not be complied with immediately by the chief of artillery or the corps commanders in his vicinity. Knowing the tried courage of the troops, General Hancock felt confident that he could hold his position, although suffering from the enemy's artillery, but was too weak to attack as the great length of the line he was obliged to hold prevented him from forming more than one line of battle and from his advanced position this line was already partly enfiladed by the batteries of the enemy on the right, which were protected from our batteries opposite them by the woods at the Dunker Church. Seeing a body of the enemy advancing on some of our troops to the left of his position, General Hancock obtained Hexamer's battery from General Franklin's Corps, which assisted materially in frustrating this attack. It also assisted the attack of the 7th Maine of Franklin's Corps, which, without other aid, made an attack against the enemy's line, and drove in skirmishers who were annoying our artillery and troops on the right. Lieutenant Woodruff, with Battery I, 2nd Artillery, relieved Captain Hexamer, whose ammunition was expended. The enemy at one time seemed to be about making an attack in force upon this part of the line, and advance a long column of infantry towards this division. But on nearing the position, General Pleasanton, opening on them with 16 guns, they halted, gave a desultory fire, and retreated closing the operations on this portion of the field. I return to the incidents occurring still further to the right. Between 12 and 1 p.m., General Franklin's Corps arrived on the field of battle, having left their camp near Crampton's Pass at 6 a.m., leaving General Couch with orders to move with his division to occupy Maryland Heights. General Smith's division led the column, followed by General Slocum's. It was first intended to keep this corps in reserve, on the east side of the Antietam, to operate on either flank or on the center, as circumstances might require. But on nearing Keatysville, the strong opposition on the right, developed by the attacks of Hooker and Sumner, rendered it necessary at once to send this corps to the assistance of the right wing. On nearing the field, hearing that one of our batteries, a 4th U.S. artillery commanded by Lieutenant Thomas, who occupied the same position as Lieutenant Woodruff's battery in the morning, was hotly engaged without supports, General Smith sent two regiments to its relief from General Hancock's brigade. On inspecting the ground, General Smith ordered the other regiments of Hancock's brigade, with Franks and Cowan's batteries, 1st New York Artillery, to the threatened position. Lieutenant Thomas and Captain Cothran, commanding batteries, bravely held their positions against the advancing enemy, handling their batteries with skill. Finding the enemy still advancing, the 3rd Brigade of Smith's division, commanded by Colonel Irvin, 49th Pennsylvania Volunteers, was ordered up and passed through Lieutenant Thomas's battery, charged upon the enemy, and drove back the advance until abreast of the Dunker Church. As the right of the brigade came opposite the woods, it received a destructive fire, which checked the advance and threw the brigade somewhat into confusion. It formed again behind a rise of ground in the open space in advance of the batteries. General French, having reported to General Franklin that his ammunition was nearly expended, that officer ordered General Brooks with his brigade to reinforce him. 
General Brooks formed his brigade on the right of General French, where they remained during the remainder of the day and night, frequently under the fire of the enemy's artillery. It was soon after the brigade of Colonel Irvin had fallen back behind the rise of ground that the 7th Maine, by order of Colonel Irvin, made the gallant attack already referred to. The advance of General Franklin's corps was opportune. The attack of the enemy on this position, but for the timely arrival of his corps, must have been disastrous, had it succeeded in piercing the line between Generals Sedgwick's and French's divisions. General Franklin ordered two brigades of General Slocum's division, General Newton's and Colonel Torbert's, to form in column to assault the woods that had been so hotly contested before by Generals Sumner and Hooker. General Bartlett's brigade was ordered to form as a reserve. At this time, General Sumner, having command on the right, directed further offensive operations to be postponed, as the repulse of this, the only remaining corps available for attack, would peril the safety of the whole army. General Porter's corps, consisting of General Sykes' division of regulars and volunteers, and General Morrell's division of volunteers, occupied a position on the east side of Antietam Creek, upon the main turnpike leading to Sharpsburg, and directly opposite the center of the enemy's line. This corps filled the interval between the right wing and General Burnside's command, and guarded the main approach from the enemy's position to our trains of supplies. It was necessary to watch this part of our line with the utmost vigilance, lest the enemy should take advantage of the first exhibition of weakness here to push upon us a vigorous assault for the purpose of piercing our center and turning our rear, as well as to capture or destroy our supply trains. Once having penetrated this line, the enemy's passage to our rear could have met with but feeble resistance, as there were no reserves to reinforce or close up the gap. Towards the middle of the afternoon, proceeding to the right, I found that Sumner's, Hooker's, and Mansfield's corps had met with serious losses. Several general officers had been carried from the field, severely wounded, and the aspect of affairs was anything but promising. At the risk of greatly exposing our center, I ordered two brigades from Porter's Corps, the only available troops, to reinforce the right. Six battalions of Sykes regulars had been thrown across the Antietam Bridge on the main road to attack and drive back the enemy's sharpshooters, who were annoying Pleasanton's horse batteries in advance of the bridge. Warren's brigade of Porter's Corps was detached to hold a position on Burnside's right and rear, so that Porter was left at one time with only a portion of Sykes' division and one small brigade of Morrell's division, but little over 3,000 men, to hold this important position. General Sumner expressed the most decided opinion against another attempt during that day to assault the enemy's position in front, as portions of our troops were so much scattered and demoralized. In view of these circumstances, after making changes in the position of some of the troops, I directed the different commanders to hold their positions, and being satisfied that this could be done without the assistance of the two brigades from the center, I countermanded the order, which was in course of execution. General Slocum's division replaced a portion of General Sumner's troops, and positions were selected for batteries in front of the woods. The enemy opened several heavy fires of artillery on the position of our troops after this, but our batteries soon silenced them. On the morning of the 17th, General Pleasanton, with his cavalry division and the horse batteries, under Captains Robertson, Tidball, and Lieutenant Haynes of the 2nd Artillery, and Captain Gibson, 3rd Artillery, was ordered to advance on the turnpike towards Sharpsburg across Bridge No. 2 and support the left of General Sumner's line. The bridge being covered by a fire of artillery and sharpshooters, cavalry skirmishers were thrown out, and Captain Tidball's battery advanced by piece and drove off the sharpshooters with canisters sufficiently to establish the batteries above mentioned, 
which opened on the enemy with effect. The firing was kept up for about two hours. When the enemy's fire slackening, the batteries were relieved by Randall's and Van Reed's batteries, U.S. artillery. About three o'clock, Tidball, Robertson, and Haynes returned to their positions on the west of Antietam, Captain Gibson having been placed in position on the east side to guard the approaches to the bridge. These batteries did good service, concentrating their fire on the column of the enemy about to attack General Hancock's position and compelling it to find shelter behind the hills in rear. General Sykes' division had been in position since the 15th, exposed to the enemy's artillery and sharpshooters. General Morrell had come up on the 16th and relieved General Richardson on the right of General Sykes. Continually under the vigilant watch of the enemy, this corps guarded a vital point. The position of the batteries under General Pleasanton being one of great exposure, the battalion of the 2nd and 10th U.S. Infantry under Captain Pollard, 2nd Infantry, was sent to his support. Subsequently, four battalions of regular infantry under Captain Dreyer, 4th Infantry, were sent across to assist in driving off the sharpshooters of the enemy. The battalion of the 2nd and 10th Infantry, advancing far beyond the batteries, compelled the cannoneers of a battery of the enemy to abandon their guns. Few in numbers and unsupported, they were unable to bring them off. The heavy loss of this small body of men attests their gallantry. The troops of General Burnside held the left of the line opposite bridge number 3. The attack on the right was to have been supported by an attack on the left. Preparatory to this attack on the evening of the 16th, General Burnside's corps was moved forward and to the left and took up a position nearer the bridge. I visited General Burnside's position on the 16th, and after pointing out to him the proper dispositions to be made of his troops during the day and night, informed him that he would probably be required to attack the enemy's right on the following morning, and directed him to make careful reconnaissances. General Burnside's corps, consisting of the divisions of Generals Cox, Wilcox, Rodman, and Sturgis, was posted as follows. Colonel Crook's brigade, Cox's division on the right, General Sturgis's division immediately in rear, on the left was General Rodman's division, with General Scammon's brigade, Cox's division, in support. General Wilcox's division was held in reserve. The Corps bivouacked in position on the night of the 16th. Early on the morning of the 17th, I ordered General Burnside to form his troops and hold them in readiness to assault the bridge in his front and to await further orders. At 8 o'clock, an order was sent to him by Lieutenant Wilson, topographical engineers, to carry the bridge, then to gain possession of the heights beyond, and to advance along their crest upon Sharpsburg and its rear. After some time had elapsed, not hearing from him, I dispatched an aide to ascertain what had been done. The aide returned with the information that but little progress had been made. I then sent him back with an order to General Burnside to assault the bridge at once and carry it at all hazards. The aide returned to me a second time with the report that the bridge was still in the possession of the enemy. Whereupon I directed Colonel Sackett, Inspector General, to deliver to General Burnside my positive order to push forward his troops without a moment's delay, and if necessary, to carry the bridge at the point of the bayonet, and I ordered Colonel Sackett to remain with General Burnside and see that the order was executed promptly. After these three hours' delay, the bridge was carried at one o'clock by a brilliant charge of the 51st New York and 51st Pennsylvania Volunteers. Other troops were then thrown over and the opposite bank occupied, the enemy retreating to the heights beyond. A halt was then made by General Burnside's advance until 3 p.m. Upon hearing which I directed one of my aides, Colonel Key, to inform General Burnside 
that I desired him to push forward his troops with the utmost vigor and carry the enemy's position on the heights, that the movement was vital to our success, that this was a time when we must not stop for loss of life, if a great object could thereby be accomplished, that if in his judgment his attack would fail to inform me so at once that his troops might be withdrawn and used elsewhere on the field. He replied that he would soon advance, and would go up the hill as far as a battery of the enemy on the left would permit. Upon this report, I again immediately sent Colonel Key to General Burnside with orders to advance at once, if possible to flank the battery or storm it and carry the heights, repeating that if he considered the movement impracticable, to inform me so that his troops might be recalled. The advance was then gallantly resumed, the enemy driven from the guns, the heights handsomely carried, and a portion of the troops even reached the outskirts of Sharpsburg. By this time it was nearly dark, and strong reinforcements just then reaching the enemy from Harper's Ferry attacked General Burnside's troops on their left flank and forced them to retire to a lower line of hills nearer the bridge. If this important movement had been consummated two hours earlier, a position would have been secured upon the heights from which our batteries might have enfiladed the greater part of the enemy's line and turned their right and rear. Our victory might thus have been much more decisive. The ground held by Burnside beyond the bridge was so strong that he ought to have repulsed the attack and held his own. He never crossed the bridge in person. The following is the substance of General Burnside's operation as given in his report. Colonel Crook's brigade was ordered to storm the bridge. This bridge, number three, is a stone structure of three arches with stone parapets. The banks of the stream on the opposite side are precipitous and command the eastern approaches to the bridge. On the hillside immediately by the bridge was a stone fence running parallel to the stream. The turns of the roadway as it wound up the hill were covered by rifle pits and breastworks of rails, etc. These works and the woods that covered the slopes were filled with the enemy's riflemen, and batteries were in position to enfilade the bridge and its approaches. General Rodman was ordered to cross the ford below the bridge. From Colonel Crook's position, it was found impossible to carry the bridge. General Sturgis was ordered to make a detail from his division for that purpose. He sent forward the 2nd Maryland and 6th New Hampshire. These regiments made several successive attacks in the most gallant style, but were driven back. The artillery of the left were ordered to concentrate their fire on the woods above the bridge. Colonel Crook brought a section of Captain Simmons' battery to a position to command the bridge. The 51st New York and 51st Pennsylvania were then ordered to assault the bridge. Taking advantage of a small spur of the hills which ran parallel to the river, they moved towards the bridge. From the crest of this spur, they rushed with bayonets fixed and cleared the bridge. The division followed the storming party, also the brigade of Colonel Crook, as support. The enemy withdrew to still higher ground, some five or six hundred yards beyond, and opened a fire of artillery on the troops in the new positions on the crest of the hill above the bridge. General Rodman's division succeeded in crossing the ford after a sharp fire of musketry and artillery, and joined on the left of Sturgis, Scammon's brigade crossing as support. General Wilcox's division was ordered to cross to take position on General Sturgis's right. These dispositions being completed about three o'clock, the command moved forward, except Sturgis's division left in reserve. Clark's and Darrell's batteries accompanied Rodman's division, Cook's battery with Wilcox's division, and a section of Simmons' battery with Colonel Cook's brigade. A section of Simmons' battery and Muhlenberg's and McMullen's batteries were in position. The order for the advance was obeyed by the troops with alacrity. General Wilcox's division, with Crook in support, moved up on both sides of the turnpike, leading from the bridge to Sharpsburg. 
General Rodman's division, supported by Scammon's brigade, on the left of General Wilcox. The enemy retreated before the advance of the troops. The 9th New York of General Rodman's division captured one of the enemy's batteries and held it for some time. As the command was driving the enemy to the main heights on the left of the town, the light division of General A.P. Hill arrived upon the field of battle from Harper's Ferry, and with a heavy artillery fire made a strong attack on the extreme left. To meet this attack, the left division diverged from the line of march intended and opened a gap between it and the right. To fill up this, it was necessary to order the troops from the second line. During these movements, General Rodman was mortally wounded. Colonel Harlan's brigade of General Rodman's division was driven back. Colonel Scammon's brigade, by a change of front to rear on his right flank, saved the left from being driven completely in. The fresh troops of the enemy pouring in and the accumulation of artillery against this command destroyed all hope of its being able to accomplish anything more. It was now nearly dark. General Sturgis was ordered forward to support the left. Notwithstanding the hard work in the early part of the day, his division moved forward with spirit. With its assistance, the enemy were checked and held at bay. The command was ordered to fall back by General Cox, who commanded on the field the troops engaged in this affair beyond the Antietam. Night closed the long and desperately contested battle of the 17th. Nearly 200,000 men and 500 pieces of artillery were for 14 hours engaged in this memorable battle. We had attacked the enemy in a position selected by the experienced engineer then in person directing their operations. We had driven them from their line on one flank and secured a footing within it on the other. The Army of the Potomac, notwithstanding the moral effect incident to previous reverses, had achieved a victory over an adversary invested with the prestige of recent successes. Our soldiers slept that night conquerors of a field won by their valor and covered with the dead and wounded of the enemy. Thirteen guns, thirty-nine colors, upwards of fifteen thousand stands of small arms, and more than six thousand prisoners were the trophies which attest the success of our arms in the battles of South Mountain, Crampton's Gap, and Antietam. Not a single gun or color was lost by our army during these battles. When I was on the right of the afternoon of the 17th, I found the troops a good deal shaken, that is, some of them who had been in the early part of the action. Even Sedgwick's division commenced giving way under a few shots from a battery that suddenly commenced firing from an unexpected position. I had to ride in and rally them myself. Sedgwick had been carried off very severely wounded. The death of Mansfield, the wounding of Hooker, Richardson, and Sedgwick were irreparable losses in that part of the field. It was this afternoon, when I was on the right, that on the field of battle I gave Hancock a division, that of Richardson, who was mortally wounded. Early next morning, the 18th, Burnside sent to ask me for a fresh division to enable him to hold his own. I sent word that I could send none until I came myself to see the state of affairs, and in a few minutes rode over there and carefully examined the position. Burnside told me that his men were so demoralized and so badly beaten the day before that were they attacked, they would give way. I told him I could see no evidence of that, but that I would lend him Orell's division for a short time, though I would probably need it again elsewhere in a few hours. I instructed him to place one brigade on some heights that ran across the valley on our left, in order to cover the left flank, the rest on the heights and rear of the bridge to cover the retreat of his men, should that prove necessary. The division was accordingly sent to him, and towards evening I learned that he had thrown it across the river and withdrawn his own men, his excuse to me being that he could not trust his men on the other side. 
The evening before, he was at my headquarters and told some of my aides that his men were badly beaten. Long afterwards, I learned from Colonel Griff Stedman, 11th Connecticut Regiment, that on the night of the 17th, he was with his then Colonel, Kingsbury, who was mortally wounded and lying in a house on our side of the bridge, close to it. Burnside came by and gave orders for the wounded to be removed still further to the rear, stating that the Corps were entirely defeated and demoralized, and that the house in question would soon be occupied by the enemy. As Kingsbury was in no condition to be removed, Stedman determined to remain with him and share his fate. It is needless to say that the house was not occupied by the enemy, and that Burnside was in no condition to know the real state of his command, as he had not been with it. But I have mentioned enough to show what his real opinions and state of mind were on the evening of the 17th and the morning of the 18th. Yet, in face of all this, he subsequently testified before the Committee on the Conduct of the War that he had, on the morning of the 18th, asked me for the reinforcement of a division to enable him to renew the attack, stating at the same time that his men were in superb condition, ready for any work, and that I had committed a great error in not renewing the battle early on the morning of the 18th. The real facts, so far as Burnside was concerned, were as I have given them above. But although his men were not, perhaps, in magnificent condition, they were by no means so demoralized as he represented them to be. I cannot, from my long acquaintance with Burnside, believe that he would deliberately lie, but I think that his weak mind was turned, that he was confused in action, and that subsequently he really did not know what had occurred, and was talked by his staff into any belief they chose. I have only averted to the very pernicious effects of Burnside's inexcusable delay in attacking the bridge and the heights in rear. What is certain is that if Porter or Hancock had been in his place, the town of Sharpsburg would have been ours. Hill would have been thrown back into the Potomac, and the Battle of Antietam would have been very decisive in its results. Brackets. In a monograph prepared by General William B. Franklin, in memory of General McClellan, that distinguished soldier thus speaks of the Maryland campaign and its results, and especially of the result of the Battle of Antietam. Without orders placing him in command other than the verbal request of the President, and without orders of any kind from anyone, he started on the Maryland campaign to find the enemy, who had been so foolish as to invade a state which had remained true to the Union. The victories of Turner's and Crampton's Gaps, of South Mountain, and of Antietam, were the results, the last battle followed by the hurried retreat of General Lee beyond the Potomac. History will some day tell why the Confederate Army was not driven into the Potomac instead of across it. It will show that its escape was not due to want of generalship of the commanding general, nor to the absence of necessary orders to subordinates. At the time of his death, General McClellan was about to write a condensed account of the Battle of Antietam for the Century Magazine. He had reviewed the events preceding South Mountain when his pen was arrested. From among the papers found lying on his writing table, where he had left them four hours before his death, the editor regards the letters of General Sackett, which here follow, as important to be published for the purposes of that history, which has not heretofore been written. End brackets. Letters from General Sackett. February 20th, 1876. My dear General, in reply to your note, I will state that, at about nine o'clock on the morning of the Battle of Antietam, you told me to mount my horse and to proceed as speedily as possible with orders directing General Burnside to move his troops across the bridge or stream in his front at once, and then to push them forward vigorously without a moment's delay to secure the heights beyond. 
You, moreover, directed me to remain with General Burnside until I saw his troops well underway up the heights in the direction of Sharpsburg, and then to return and report to you. I started at once as fast as my horse could carry me. I found General Burnside on an elevated point near the position of Lieutenant Benjamin's 20-pounder battery, commanding an extensive view of the battlefield. I gave him your orders, which seemed to annoy him somewhat, as he said to me, McClellan appears to think I am not trying my best to carry this bridge. You are the third or fourth one who has been to me this morning with similar orders. I told him I knew you were exceedingly anxious, and regarded his getting across the stream and moving on Sharpsburg with rapidity and vigor at once as of vital importance to a complete success. General Burnside ordered assaults to be made on the bridge, which were for a long time unsuccessful. I had been at his headquarters for fully three hours when Colonel Key arrived from your headquarters with positive orders to push across the bridge and to move rapidly up the heights, to carry the bridge at the point of the bayonet if necessary, and not stop for loss of life as sacrifices must be made in favor of success. As soon as Colonel Key had gone, I suggested to General Burnside, were he to go down near the bridge, his presence among the troops could have the effect to encourage and stimulate the men to renewed efforts. He said he would, and immediately mounted his horse and rode in the direction of the bridge, but soon returned saying the bridge had been carried and the troops were crossing over as rapidly as possible. He likewise mentioned at this time that Colonel Henry Kingsbury had been mortally wounded in the assault on the bridge. General Burnside at once issued instructions for the move in the direction of Sharpsburg, but for some unaccountable reason things moved slowly and there was a long delay in getting the troops in motion. Colonel Key again returned with instructions to General Burnside to push forward his troops rapidly and with vigor, to secure the heights, as every moment gained was of utmost importance to our success. I remained with General Burnside until his troops were well and seemingly successfully underway up the heights they having gallantly driven the enemy from the field for fully one-half the distance in the direction of Sharpsburg. Seeing this and everything apparently going well, I returned to headquarters, where I found General Fitzjohn Porter, you being away temporarily on a visit to the right of the battlefield. It was at this time past four o'clock in the afternoon. It was not long after this that the check and repulse of General Burnside's advance was witnessed. Often since that time I have thought what a serious misfortune was the death of the noble and energetic Reno. Had not that chivalric soldier fallen at South Mountain, Antietam certainly would have been, in its results, a very different affair. It would have been one of the most, if not the most, complete and important battle of the war. I am, General, very truly yours, D.B. Sackett, Inspector General, USA, to General George B. McClellan. New York City, March 9, 1876. My dear General, I will state in respect to a conversation had in my presence between General Burnside and yourself that late in the evening on the day of the Battle of Antietam, I was with you in your tent when General Burnside entered. The position occupied and the condition of his command became at once the topic of conversation with you too. As I understood the matter, General Burnside desired to withdraw his troops to the left bank of the stream, giving as a reason for the move the dispirited condition of his men, stating further that if he remained in his present position, an attack was made by the enemy, he very much feared the result. You replied, General, your troops must remain where they are and must hold their ground. General Burnside then said, If I am to hold this position at all hazards, I must be largely reinforced. And, if not much mistaken, he mentioned the number of men necessary for the purpose at 5,000. You then replied, with emphasis, General, I expect you to hold your own and with the force now under your command. 
At this point, other general officers arrived, and I left the tent and heard nothing more of the conversation. Afterward, in looking over General Burnside's testimony before the Committee on the Conduct of the War, I was a good deal surprised to read, I went to General McClellan's tent, and in course of conversation I expressed the same opinion that the attack might be renewed the next morning at 5 o'clock, and told him that if I could have 5,000 fresh troops to pass in advance of my line, I would be willing to commence the attack on the next morning. This statement brought back to my mind vividly that evening's conversation after Antietam. The conversation between General Burnside and yourself, as I heard it, and General Burnside's testimony before the committee, differ widely. I may be mistaken, but it has always appeared to me that the conversation to which I was a witness, and the statement made before the War Committee, must have referred to one and the same matter, the fighting condition of General Burnside's command on the night after the Battle of Antietam. I am General, very truly yours, D.B. Sackett, Inspector General USA, to General George B. McClellan. End of chapter 36